0: Hello, listeners. Jordan here. I just want to let you know that you can listen to Nighttime early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome to UFOs Above Canada, a nighttime podcast series exploring the people, the events, and the concepts that surround the Canadian UFO experience. Hello listeners, and welcome to the next installment in the nighttime podcast's UFOs Above Canada series. In tonight's episode, I got something really special for you. As has been made clear time and time again in this series, conversations around sightings of unexplained objects in the sky tend to lean heavily on the account of the person or people who saw the object. Sure, we may have the grainy photo or blurry video here and there, but they never seem to hold much water. It's the eyewitness accounts that I want to hear about. Typically, the witness is an untrained observer Someone who's often left without the words or experiences to fully describe what they have seen. Then, every so often, we have the exception. And tonight is going to be one of those times. In June of 1997, two Halifax police officers took a quick break from the action to have a coffee and a quick chat. They pulled into a dark parking lot behind a Tim Hortons, parked their cruisers window to window and started their break fully unaware that their lives were about to change forever. Within only minutes, an object would appear in the sky that to this day, over 25 years later, they have been unable to explain. And we're about to hear all about it. Let's get right into it. Tonight in this episode of Nighttime, I'm going to be joined by Rick Prescott, formerly known as Constable Prescott of the Halifax Regional Police Force. And Rick's gonna tell us about the two Halifax police officers and the UFO. Rick, I'm so happy you can be joining me from afar. The story we're going to be discussing takes place in Nova Scotia, but uh, we're, we're talking uh, with a great distance between us. You're no longer in Nova Scotia. Where are you at now?
1: Right now, I'm about an hour northwest of Chicago, you okay. know, Henry, Illinois.
0: Okay. Uh, Nova Scotia still holds a, a special place in your heart. Do you miss it here?
1: Oh, my God there wasn't a part of that province that i didn't know like the back of my hand they need to yarmouth Mm -hmm. i fly the area i hunted the area i lived outdoors there just nova scotia is the best place i ever lived in in my entire life it's phenomenal
0: it's still home and and for people who are listening to us that don't see us you're wearing a nova scotia shirt right now so i i thought you would remember it fondly uh but Let's talk a little bit about your time in Nova Scotia and specifically your history in policing. I found some old photos of you from I think either the late 80s or early 90s where you were working at the time for the Dartmouth uh, Police Force, which of course doesn't exist anymore. But maybe tell me a little bit about your history in policing in Nova Scotia.
1: I came to Nova Scotia in about 1980 or so, uh, getting out of the United States Marine Corps I married a girl from Nova Scotia. She was a school teacher. Uh, I met her when I was overseas. Her parents were on uh, were embassy guards for Canada. And uh, anyway, I decided once I got out, I moved to Nova Scotia, went to St. Mary's University, got my degree, and then uh, pursued policing for some odd reason. It was just a part of my personality click. Hmm. And so I, uh, I I worked really hard at getting on with the Halifax Regional Police. League. Before that, I worked with uh, the Sheraton Hotel when they first opened it uh, as a director of security, and so I did that sort of so, sort of thing until I got into policing. I went to the Atlantic Police Academy uh, in Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island, uh, along with a great group of people who uh, from the good Nova Scotians that uh, that I had attended there with. Most of us came back, Some went to Halifax, and many of us went to uh, Dartmouth Police uh, after. And I began a great phenomenal career in policing at that point. That was mm-hmm. back in um, eighty six,
0: eighty seven. You're retired now? I'm retired now, yes. did Did you retire while working for the police in Halifax, or, or did you I worked
1: with uh, with the Halifax regional slash Dartmouth Police. For a total of 15 years, almost okay. to the day. Unfortunately, my wife and I, we had uh, separated at that point, And really, that was the, the catalyst that held me there, other than my 250-plus friends and uh, my phenomenal experience there. And I, I loved my life.
0: Mm-hmm. And now let's talk about during the 90s when you're working as a police officer in Nova Scotia, in, in the Halifax area, in Dartmouth area. Well, sir, what were you doing? Like were you an investigator? Like what, what kind of stuff were you doing in Halifax in that era?
1: I like to call myself a street cop. I patrol the streets. I worked the paddy wagon for many years with uh, with a few phenomenal individuals in uh, in Dartmouth. I patrol the north end of Dartmouth around you know, the Pine Crest area, Sector 4, Sector 5, we call it. And, um, and so I had worked the streets, uh, there wasn't a, a crack in a sidewalk or, uh, you know, a, cr- a hole in a street that I wasn't aware of knew yeah. the area that well, I knew so many people, I knew the criminals really well, I knew the area, you know, and I'll, I'll put it this way. If someone, and, and I had this little bit of a reputation myself as well, if somebody was committing a, a nasty little crime, uh, for example, a couple of guys decided to, to shoot up a, a donut shop now ironically, it's a donut shop and don't hold me to this, okay? Cause I know what police reputate, blah, blah. You know the police <laughs> because it was a donut shop, it wasn't the reason why I went after this. <laughs> but I told my my sergeant, just hey, just leave me alone for the day and uh, I'll have these guys by four thirty this afternoon. And they were hiding in the woodwork, and that's what I did. I worked the North End. Uh, and found them, and by four thirty in the
0: afternoon, we had them in custody. <laughs> wow! Uh, working as a street cop in the '90s in Dartmouth, man, you must have some stories. About one hundred one thousand of them. <laughs> uh, so, I guess the type of crimes that you would be investigating or working on in, as a street cop in that era would be like break and enters, assault, theft. Would that be like a, you know that kind of crime that you'd be focused on primarily? Would you say?
1: Well, we were involved. We were involved in any in everything. We were involved with the uh, peripheral sides of it, of the investigations against the Hells Angels, for example. Mm. If they kicked in the doors to uh, to execute a warrant at that time on those guys, we were outside providing backup. Uh, peripheral. We would uh, we would tend to bar fights, the violence that might take place in bars. Assaults on individuals, assaults on property, breaking out home invasions, uh, domestic disputes, uh, sexual assaults. we We had done wow, it, it's amazing what police officers see in their lives. I, I can tell you that right now it was a it was a, uh, we, we saw the downside of of, of that incredible community. Mm-hmm. and what was really neat about it, we all we were also part of the uh, the rumor mill. so it's going on just about at every level
0: yeah Yeah. um speaking of like you know you see everything as a cop that that kind of is a good segue into our discussion because we're going to be talking about some unexpected things you saw but before we get to that when you're working as a street cop in Dartmouth, uh, you're in your you know paddy wagon or cruiser or whatnot, there's not always activity. There's going to be periods of time where there's probably not a lot going on. What would a police officer do during that downtime? Like we talked to just briefly there about the reputation of coffee and donuts, but let's say there's not a call coming in. How do you pass that 45 minutes in the middle of the night?
1: Well, I can say this. Uh, during our time, for the most part, we'd patrol the streets. We'd patrol, show the flag, we call it, to deter crime. So there wasn't a street or, or alleyway or what that we didn't drive through to show that flag during that time. But from time to time, if it was really super busy, if it was crazy, and, uh, you know, you're, you're pretty tired from answering all the calls, we do our reports during this free time. Uh, we would do, you know, just, but every once in a while, we would say, hey, hey, man, get together for a coffee what do you want a coffee tea what and we would uh, drive side by sides put our cars driver drawer to uh, driver door and roll the window down shoot the breeze for about 15-20 minutes and then carry on we just have our coffee and tell the war stories tell a bunch of jokes and uh, uh, tease each other and and just move along yeah so
0: so uh, on that point, tell me about Rob Furlong. I my understanding is uh, based on even the photos that I found of you from that era. You, you must have worked together for a while. You consider him a coworker, a friend. Who's Rob Furlong to you? Oh my!
1: Well, it wasn't just Rob; it was the entire platoon. Mm-hmm. We knew each other to the point where, you know, we knew each other. We we would socialize at each other's homes. We would party together. The uh, you know we'd go to the beach together. We'd fish together. We did a lot of things uh, as as a family, so the the tightness. of I mean, our, our our spouses knew each other. Um, so, but and I can say that with with Rob Furlong, he is a, a not just a good friend. Like consider him like I do, like several of the other individuals in my platoon, my brothers, mm-hmm. my sisters, because we had female officers as well, and they were we were tight. Mm-hmm. So. Um, Rob and I, we worked the North end primarily together for, I would say the vast majority of the time I was on a police force. Wow. So we got to go with each other really well. Mm-hmm. So we, it was not uncommon for Rob and I to get together car to car, share a coffee and, uh, and, and, you know, his sense of humor really turned the darkness into a hilarious light. Yeah. So uh, we, we get together from time to time and just, uh, just shoot the breeze. And, mm-hmm. But, um, you know even even when i come back to nova scotia these days to visit i won't pass through the area without dropping in on uh, rob and his and his wonderful family
0: oh wonderful uh well the reason we introduced rob is because he plays a part in this story he's a witness of the same thing you were a witness to so why don't you tell sure. me about that night in june of 1997 you uh yourself and rob i believe planned to meet up for that kind of window to window coffee chat Uh, and that's kind of where this starts so maybe tell me the story
1: well it was a it was a very busy night it was a night shift uh i just remember it just being chaotic and finally for some odd reason right around one o'clock in the morning the uh the tap turned off it just got very quiet so we said okay let's take this this moment catch our breath a little bit and so rob and i we met at the tim horton's up in uh, the Burnside Industrial Park. It's it's within our area of patrol. So what we did is uh, I grabbed us a coffee, and we went over. If you go behind um, Thorndale Drive, that area, I suppose, but there is a, a large field overlooking the 111 Highway. Uh, the power lines are back there, and there was a trail, a, a little road trail back there that uh, that's primarily used by the uh, electrical services when they when they surveyed the power lines and so on. So um, our Nova Scotia power. So we, we went back there, uh, not far from the power lines. We could oversee the area. We were in an area where we were safe. Um, if they gave us a call, we can get out of there very quickly and go answer that call anywhere, anytime, quickly, within a minute or two. So we were in a really nice strategic location. It was dark. And it was an amazingly typical, I won't say typical, it's not like, like it all the time, but it was one of those amazing starry nights where you, you could almost see the, the the milky way at its finest. And it was one of those type of uh, evenings uh, when, while we parked there. So we parked, you know, window to window and started shooting the breeze. I gave him his, uh, his, his coffee. And uh and away we away we went with our conversation. Mm-hmm.
0: So sharing horror stories about the night, just catching up and enjoying kind of like a little bit of a, a break from the chaos of the prior few hours. And also the the area that you're describing for people who haven't been to Halifax uh, in in this part of the this part of the province, you, you're kind of on like the outskirt of outskirts of the city, I guess, near the near the edge. so the so the sky would be a lot darker than it would be there than it would be in say downtown Halifax or even you know closer to downtown Dartmouth. So although you are in the city, You're kind of uh just on the cusp of being out of the city so i I think that's just relevant in describing how clear the night sky would be in burnside versus downtown halifax so you're there relaxing shooting the breeze having coffee when does when does it start to get weird what happens
1: excuse me we're just shooting the breeze uh catching up you know stress relief (laughs) and and while I was talking to him, uh, the vantage point that I I'm, I can see I can almost see the Magazine Hill. I can see the Bedford Basin, the entire Bedford Basin. You can see the West End, Halifax, Bedford area over the basin itself. Uh, off to my left, around I would say eight o'clock to me at that point was the uh, the, the the McKay Bridge uh, and Exceeded One Eleven Highway right behind me. So I, I was at a really good advantage point. See what's going on around me but but um, and and as you said at uh, that part of the you're not going to get the effects of the street lights uh, blocking the view of the stars and everything. so I could see the stars quite well well at that point I was looking at Rob and I saw something out of the corner of my eye or peripheral vision uh something move in the sky <clears throat> and it made it's not uncommon. comic that is an area where lots and lots of planes come flying through. You know the area. Uh, planes come from New York, from Europe, from everywhere, to, from Gander, to fly in that same flight path to head toward the Halifax International Airport, which is, I believe, at that vantage point, if, if I'm correct, uh, is about a northeasterly to us, to where, where to that vantage point. And so, but anyway, something moved. And it wasn't that something moved, it was something that was disappearing. The stars were disappearing behind something that was a mass that was incredibly large. Rob says that the thing was only um, a few hundred, about a hundred yards wide. My perception was that it was about a mile wide. I'm looking over the Bedford Basin I'm looking over in the probably the Fairview area of Halifax. It's lit up, and the stars above that area were disappearing behind this and then reappearing on the other end of it. So you tape out of it. And it was a huge, massive triangular shape to that from that vantage point, it's all the way across that harbor, how wide is the is the Bedford Basin? It's over a mile. So, But anyway, I'm watching these, these stars disappear behind this. And I mentioned to Rob, I looked right at him and says, you got to see this. I back my car up. I get out of the car. And he's kind of giggling at me. Okay, <laughs> what's going on? So he gets out of the car. And I was totally fixated at this point. I said, get over here. And he walked in front of his car and I said, what the heck is that? And his, his smile giggled. He looked at me and goes, I don't have a clue, I I have no idea what that is. And I went, yeah, how big is this thing? What, can you hear it, do you hear any sound? We were both just flabbergasted at what we were looking at. What we saw was a huge black mass that hid the stars behind it. And it was moving at such a slow pace it wasn't like an airplane because an airplane moves at a pace that will keep the wings uh, afloat due to the, you know, the air mass under its wings, holding it uh, up. It has a fuselage. This thing didn't. It made absolutely no sound, just like an airplane or a chopper or some something would do. But it was almost like a balloon. But it wasn't a balloon. It was a blast, mass, triangular, perfectly triangular in shape. It was a A strong triangle, and it emanated a light in the front. It was almost like there was a cockpit. It was a window, Um, but I couldn't tell if it was a cockpit or not. But it was a light. It was kind of a square type of uh, light. It was emanated white, but a yellow haze, and you could see it clearly. And so so you could see the tip of it uh, as it from the triangular portion of it. And, um, and as it moved, it moved so slowly, making absolutely no noise at all. Uh, uh, and we saw this for not just a second or two. We saw this for quite a while.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. course you can't get a great look at it in the sky but you may have some sense of how high it is how high would you would you estimate that this was above you
1: you know when when i was when i was in the marines i could call in an airstrike i could call in mortar strikes, so i had a kind of a uh, sort of a a perspective in terms of um a distance and so forth i would put this at about five to seven thousand feet so it's fairly close to the ground it's not that high uh Rob figured that it was about 10,000 feet and and uh, but I'm thinking you know, I was, was kind of arguing with him on his point look that thing was 10,000 feet and only a hundred yards wide you think it would look mm-hmm. that big the thing was closer to the ground and it was massive so I, I like I said I would put this thing at uh, at you know two kilometers about a mile in in size that's what i would put this thing at it was just incredibly large
0: yeah then as it passes over you does it eventually just pass through the sky and out of your field of view like how does this leave the sky above you
1: well um it didn't actually pass right over us it passed in our front trajectory from left to right Mm -hmm. it wasn't directly above us Mm -hmm. um and so what happened was I got on my cell phone and I called dispatch and the girl answered the phone. I said, uh, all right, need you just do me a favor she goes, all right, Rick, what's going on that? I, I need you to call the Halifax international airport, call the tower and ask them if they have an aircraft coming in to land at the airport right now. So he goes, what's going on? I said, just, I'll tell you later. Just ask Paul, please. So she gets on the phone and she did speak with the people at the tower. It's no, we don't have any, any planes in the sky. And I asked her, tell her, tell them to check again, ask them if there is a aircraft, if they have anything in a radar above the Bedford basin over, over Bedford. And she said, Oh, come back seconds later. She goes, no, they don't. Okay. Thanks. Do me a favor. If the civilians can't get it, the military boys will. Mm -hmm. Call Shearwater airport, the airbase. Do me a favor. Goes, what, what's going on? I said, no, don't. I'll tell you later. Call. I need you to do this quickly because you're playing a joke. No, I swear to you, I'm not. <laughs> so she calls the uh, the tower at Shearwater, and that Shearwater is what six to ten miles from me. Mm-hmm. So she calls and she talks to them and uh, and and she asks them the same question. No aircraft in the air at that time, and I'm looking at Rob and Rob's looking at me. That's impossible. So all of this has taken a place over a period of a good five minutes. So at this point, we're watching it heading out of our area of view. So I told the girl, I said, go outside on the patio. At that, at that time, the Halifax Regional Police uh, Dispatch was over in the Bedford area. I don't know where it is now, but it was in the Bedford area, right along the Bedford Basin. And I mm-hmm. had a, like, a little patio outside go outside of the patio and look Northeast, go. So she did. And she's still on, she gets on her phone, calls me back and she says, uh, oh, what am I looking at? I said, look over to Bedford. And by that time it was gone. Uh, oh, damn. Would have been great to have the, the the third witness to this. You know, it would have been a third wheel, but uh, mm-hmm. that was not to be.
0: But, but based on what you just told me, my, my assumption is that, as uh, you and Rob are watching this, y- your first instinct is, or your first thought is, that this must be some type of an aircraft. When you rule out um, it being a commercial aircraft going to the Halifax Airport or something related to the military, what are the two of you thinking there, watching this? You know, <laughs> when you when you get those answers that, like, no, there's not an airplane in the sky. What are you thinking?
1: <laughs> We're just baffled. I uh, I just looked at him and I went, "What the heck was that?" And that was our first question. What was it? We know it was something and it wasn't a flock of birds. It wasn't, you know, it wasn't the typical stuff that you, that you read about. And we became suddenly interested in the, in this type of, in this type of uh, material. That's when, when my interest really peaked at that point. And it stayed the same since because he actually saw one. Mm-hmm. So the us, it wasn't a military aircraft. It wasn't a, a, a CH-53 helicopter, or a Sikorsky, it wasn't uh, a commercial aircraft, it wasn't, you know, uh, it wasn't any military, according to radar, it, military and civilian, it wasn't anything in the sky. We just saw a UFO. And we we just looked at each other, and said, what are we gonna do about this? And uh, so Rob was, uh, I'm not gonna report it. <laughs> I said, me neither. Does not Imagine being chastised by that crew that we work with. <laughs> I can hear boo, 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 you know, all of those <laughs> things. For the rest so, of the year. I'm not going to happen. I'm not. I'm not saying a word.
0: Yeah. So you you called dispatch, asked those questions, but aside from that, there was you never like submitted an actual like report to supervisors or something about this event. You're just like, eh, I'm not going. Not even going there.
1: that's exactly it. I wasn't going to go anywhere near that. Because can you imagine, you know, you got police officers. We're, we're skeptical. We're a very skeptical type of crew. And we're also a crew that with each other, after everything we see and do, we're going to be really hard on each other. Well, I mean, mm-hmm. We're going to blast each other right out of the water. And it'll never end. You know, uh, you know, I <laughs> can see the Twilight Zone uh, pictures on the
0: wall when we go into
1: breathing and,
0: and you name it. <laughs> yeah. That's probably going to Um so you you didn't report it through official sources or through official like kind of methods but here's where an interesting player comes into this. I'm a massive fan of the now deceased Art Bell and Coast to Coast. Uh my whole life loved Art and Coast to Coast. I think Art Bell is the best who's ever done it by the way, but s- somehow you reach out to Coast to Coast and Art Bell. What's the story with that?
1: Well, you know what? Uh, uh... Art Bell was on at least once a week and during the night shifts, it was a perfect show to listen to hell. Yeah. And what irritated me was, uh, is being, listening to Art Bell, you get right into the middle of a great story. Next thing you know, you're going on a call, Oh, you know, (laughs) so had to get back to Art Bell. So I I really did enjoy his, his show. And, um, what, what happened was the weekend came and i jumped right on the computer on a saturday morning and typed art bell a letter told him everything told him everything mm-hmm. to scribed here and uh and next thing you know the following week art bells on on the air cuz yes um, got a letter here a very interesting letter from uh, from some people the police officers from nova scotia let me peak my my so i'm i'm trying to call rob but he's on a call i'm trying to let him know hey we're going to be on the air here for a second. And um, so I never told Rob that when I when I typed the letter to Art Bell, I signed it, Rob Furlong. <laughs> 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 so I threw him under the bus.
0: <laughs> yeah. I had done the same.
1: Oh, that no, was hilarious. <laughs>
0: so,
1: uh, anyway, Art Bell actually called Rob's home. Rob's wife answered the phone it's whole art yeah it's unfortunate I'm listening to this on the radio this was live and he goes ah oh, unfortunately Rob is uh, is working right now we can't talk to him so when Rob came back from the call I told him about what just happened he goes you gave him my name? <laughs> 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 well yeah I'm not going to give him mine <laughs> yeah. but, um, but he did read my letter over the air and and I went wow man that was that, was, uh, that made it on the Art
0: Bell show it was pretty cool So you, you see something like this. They they say seeing is believing. So I don't think I need to ask you, you know, if, if you believe that there are unexplained objects in the sky, because clearly you saw one. So I'm, I think it's an irrelevant question. But how did this change, you know, how you view the skies later in your life, having seen something like this? It must have had an effect on you.
1: That it did. I, I have to tell you, man. It uh, <laughs> when I go camping. You know, I'm out in the middle of the woods somewhere and I stare at the sky. Mm-hmm. Always a full moon night, I'm out. And mm-hmm. when I'm looking at the sky during the day, it's, it, you know, everyone looks at the sky for crying out loud. It's a beautiful day. You're going to look at the clouds. But when I look at the clouds, I'm kind of anticipating that, uh, that, that there may be something that you can't get over it. After seeing that, i can tell you i've heard this said before i know what i saw i know what i saw and it's not a, a, because i was drinking it wasn't because i was uh, uh wanting it or or some sort of hysterical type of thing that people come up with uh to try to explain these things away i know what i saw and i know what i experienced and i know from dispatcher's point of view that uh, other people couldn't see it. Those that, that would monitor those type of things would see this threat. There's no way they're not going to. Stealth technology wasn't available back then at least as far as I know. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know we, we, we did have uh, maybe maybe they had the F-18 A's or whatever at that point, but the, even they could be seen by those uh, radar units and they would emanate some sort of a signature. I know what I saw, and there's no other explanation other than that uh, that it was a UFO. Was it a military aircraft? Was it extraterrestrial? I don't know. I, I can't, I won't, not quite ready to jump into that yet, but, uh, but I do know what I saw, and it was real. It was a, a, a witnessed experience. It wasn't just me. So it had an impact in the sense that when I look at the sky today, I don't look at it quite the same way as I did before. When I a satellite, I'm going, you know, and I'm still kind of skeptical because you see satellites all the time. If you're in Nova Scotia, sit out on your back patio deck during the, uh, the during the evening hours, around eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night or so, just as it gets really good and dark at ten o'clock, you'll see piles of satellites. You'd be able to tell that they're satellites just by the way they move. Um, now, today, when I look at those, I take a second look at it and I, I stare at it. I study it, as opposed to just accepting that it might be just simply a satellite anymore. The curiosity really caught this cat.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> Now, you mentioned you don't make a trip to Nova Scotia without trying to connect with Rob Furlong. Is this something like where you witness this together? Is this something to this day you still discuss with him?
1: <laughs> he and I, about two weeks ago, were on the phone. And uh, he brought that up again. Remember, this. how can I forget, Rob? So he said, you know what? We never reported this. And I would love me to report it? I said, I'll type it up. I'll send it. He goes, Yeah, let's do that. He convinced me to to uh, to, to shoot out something, and that's what I did. That's what brought you and I together, really. Yep,
0: yeah, you you posted it uh, a short version of the story in the UFOs Above Canada Facebook group, and that's where where I saw you. And being in Halifax when you mentioned, you know, you being a hell of a, at the time a police officer in Halifax, I had to learn more. Um, last question that I'm gonna end with is, so you, you talk w- about yourself and Rob, to this day, great friends, you're still talking about this event. And it seems like now maybe you're more, you, the two of you are more willing to share the story and you know maybe try to connect some dots. Do you think in, in any way is it therapeutic to be doing that? Like why now are you coming forward and talking about this? Well, I can't call it therapeutic. I think that once you reach a certain age, don't care about how people think about (laughs) it. yeah that's true with a lot of ufo stories my personal experience with it is uh my granddad when he was a young man or younger man saw an unexplained object in the sky with my grandmother they did not want to talk about it for fear of being you know called names by their friends then once my dad my granddad was you know getting into the later years he's just like i don't give a shit. i'll tell you, i'll tell everybody the story uh so i think a lot of people you know later in life you you don't have your co-workers who are going to call you names and hang weird stuff on your door and nothing stop you from coming forward i,
1: I grew up in an era where we listened to the old records from orson, orson wells i think it was uh, the world yeah. the original recording on the record took place back in halloween of 1939 or something like that mm-hmm. and <clears throat> excuse me um, so you know we we i knew as a child when i was by the time i was in seventh grade or grade seven that hey you know this this type of thing is uh uh is an interest to the general population people can panic and so forth and uh but even as a kid though i was i was kind of skeptical when I remember one night, it was a lady that we were with. She uh, was taking us to church, and we got out of her car at her home, or we were getting in her car at her home. She looked up in the sky and she sees a satellite. Now this was back in the '60s. She is freaking out. <laughs> you know, oh my goodness, there's a there's a, a spaceship, and where all of us kids are telling her, no, it's a satellite. But why were we interested? Why why would we say it was a satellite back then? because we were watching things like Friendship 7 go up into in space with John Glenn and NASA uh, was was very active during his time and so forth, space discovery. We didn't freak out over these things. They did because they didn't grow up with that, but we grew up with it. So already at 10, 11 years old or whatever I was at that time, I was, I was skeptical, if you want to call it that. I'm That's not the first thing I went to. Mm-hmm. So, but even at that night, even on that evening, it's not the first thing we went to, but what we were trying to do is figure out what it was. And I was looking at it from, you know, cause I, I used to, uh, be a member over at the, uh, the Dartmouth yacht club. I had my own boat out there. So mm-hmm. I took courses and I knew what a navigational hazard was. And I figured this might be a navigational hazard because this is going right over the flight path heading toward Halifax airport. A plane could crash into this thing, not being able to see it if it's not on the radar. one. Yeah. I wasn't thinking quite like that, but I was—I was not far from that. I looked at it as potential hazard. That's why we call the airports.
0: It makes sense, yeah. So we
1: couldn't figure out what it was, and that's—that's that's where we were. And in the end, we said, "I think we just saw UFO."
0: I want to thank you for joining Rick and I for this discussion. Now, let me start wrapping this up, but before I do, I'm going to give some thanks. First, a massive thank you to Rick Prescott for sharing his remarkable story with me and with you, the listeners of Nighttime. A shout out to Monty Data for contributing the music for this episode. And lastly, but most importantly, a massive thank you to each and every one of you listening as without your interest and your support, Nighttime would be as pointless as it would be impossible. But with that said, keeping the show alive is and has always been an uphill battle. So if you want to help take a bit of weight off the show's back, the best way to pitch in is by subscribing to the premium feed. And on that topic, let me thank the newest subscribers, Johan, Ashley, and Peg. Thank you for your generous support. And for anyone else out there who's not currently listening on the premium feed, you can subscribe at patreon.com/nighttimepodcast. And if you're unfamiliar with what Premium Feed means, the Premium Feed is the spot where you'll get the episodes ad-free, two days early, and you'll get access to a full back episode archive. And one last thing, if anyone listening has a UFO experience to share, has any story ideas, wants to give feedback on the show, or would like to contribute a voice memo to be aired and responded to in an upcoming episode, you can do all that and more at nighttimepodcast.com contact. I hope to hear from you. But until then, take care of each other, hug your loved ones tight, and let me know if you see anything weird. The Nighttime Podcast is written, hosted, and produced by Jordan Bonaparte.